The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to open it to Mark chapter 7. That's where we're going to be spending our time together um, today. One of the things that has... um, that's really been a part of, of what we do and how we do it here at Westway Christian Church is we don't want to just we don't want to just spend time in the Bible and tell you what the Bible says. We want to we actually want to equip you to be able to have to be able to read the Bible on your own. Um, we want to teach you how to do that. So as we've as we've taught and we've prepared sermons and messages and small groups and lessons. You probably have noticed that that's our that that's our mo is we are constantly providing you with resources uh, to be able to teach you how to read and understand the Bible. And today's no different. I'm reading a book right now that I only recently heard about by a pastor named Dan Kimball, and the book is uh, titled uh, "How Not to Study the Bible." Because there are lots of wrong ways to read and study the Bible. And it's, I'm only a couple chapters in, but it's been a really good read. And one of the first things that he talks about, one of the biggest mistakes that, um, that he says, and I agree with him, one of the biggest mistakes that Christians often make when we're reading and studying the Bible is we often only read one verse. And what happens is when we read that verse, if we don't understand everything else that's going on around it, we can take it out of context. So his, his, first, uh, his first premise in how not to read the Bible is don't, never read a Bible verse, never just read one single verse. And today as we go through Mark chapter 7, especially when we get to the part that, that we're really going to spend a lot of our time on here in a few minutes when Jesus meets this Syrophoenician woman and he calls her a dog, like we have to wrestle with what that means. And if we're not careful, if we only read that one text... If that's, if that's what we read to tell us everything we ever needed to know about Jesus, we would come to some pretty uh, incorrect conclusions about who Jesus is. If we didn't know, as Paul Harvey used to say, I know I just really dated myself. If we, if we didn't know the rest of the story and only made our decision about the reality of who Jesus is on one verse, we are asking ourselves for trouble. So what I'm going to do today is we're going to we're going to kind of talk through Mark chapter 7, and, and you'll be able to follow along with me. Um, and I'm going to, I, I made some, some of my own notes, um, and then I broke down the section. So the first five verses are, are this, the confrontation from the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law. So when we break down Mark chapter 7, the first five verses are really this confrontation that the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law are bringing against Jesus. And here's, here's what's going on in the text. Some of Jesus' disciples did not wash their hands before they ate. Parents, you probably confronted your kids about not washing their hands um, before they ate. Uh, and that's obviously about cleanliness, because if you have kids, you know how dirty their hands are. But it's important to understand that the, the, the confrontation here is not about cleanliness. It's not about uh, the, uh, my hands actually need to be physically clean. The confrontation here is about ritual. 
And we know that because uh, in the parentheses, at least the NLT has that in parentheses, that verse 3, the Jews, especially the Pharisees, did not eat until they poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. So it had nothing to do with cleanliness. So when these Pharisees and these teachers of religious law approach Jesus, it's not about cleanliness, it's about ritual. So as I, I did some research and some study on this, one of the things... Um, one of the things that I found is after the Babylonian captivity, so if you are familiar at all with the Old Testament, you know that the people, uh, the Jewish people, they had years and years and decades and centuries of disobedience with God. And during that whole time, God was sending them prophets, he was sending them teachers, he's sending them kings, he's telling them all these things, like if you don't, uh, basically, if you don't follow my rules, if you don't follow my law, I am going to allow another nation to come in and take over. And that's exactly what happens. First, the Assyrians did that, and then the Babylonians did that, and they took the people away. And they spent 70 years in captivity. And then all of these people came home, right? When that 70 years was up, a number of Jewish people returned home. And these rabbis, these Jewish rabbis, they began making meticulous rules about the daily lives of the people. And what they were doing is they were reading Moses's law and they were interpreting it and say, when we read the law of Moses, this is what it means. Okay. And this is, this is really, um, this is really important for us to understand. Rabbis were not the same as priests. Only the Levites were priests. So who are these rabbis? Well, they were people who achieved their status through study. So they were really, really learned men. And it's kind of easy to see why this would happen, why these people would be like, hey, we have to really make sure we wash our hands before we eat. We have to have all of these traditions. We have to follow all of these religious rituals. Because that's the reason in their mind, that's the reason why God allowed the Babylonians to come in and take over. Does that make sense? So if we don't follow the law... If we don't follow the rules to the letter of the law, then this whole thing is going to happen again and again. And it's just going to cycle. It's going to be more captivity. So if you heard, if you knew, let's say you were someone who had been in captivity in Babylon and you arrived back home and you heard and you knew that one of the reasons why you were taken captive was you didn't follow the religious law. What are you going to do? You're probably going to follow the letter of the law, right? You want to be obedient to it. You want to make sure that doesn't happen again. You would be so concerned about external things, and this is what's going on in this text, is that um, you don't want your holiness damaged by external things. Boy, if we don't wash our hands properly, God's going to get mad at us. So we've got to follow the rules. We've got to do what we're supposed to do. Right? It's these external things, and what we're starting to see in this chapter is this battle between external and internal things. And then in verses 6 to 13, Jesus responds, and it's interesting the way he responds. Um, he says, you, Pharisees and teachers of religious law, you're hypocrites. Okay, so follow along. Like This escalates pretty quickly. Jesus, your disciples aren't washing their hands. Yep, and you are a bunch of hypocrites. Isaiah was right about you. It says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. See, what you're doing is you are ignoring 
God's law and you are replacing it with your tradition. You are elevating your laws, you're elevating your rules, you're elevating your tradition over what God's law is really about. And here's an example. Mark, God, Mark continues, says, God told you to honor your father and mother and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of their parents is to be put to death. But you tell people it's okay to not honor your parents if you vowed that money to the temple. Okay? Doesn't that sound holy? Mom, dad, I would love to be able to help you. I would love to be able to take care of you. But I have given my money to God. So I cannot care for you. See, what Jesus is doing is he's pointing out, he's pointing out this hypocrisy in the lives of the Pharisees and the teacher. He's canceling God's word, which is honor father and mother, and they are replacing it with tradition. We have to give money to the temple. We have to give money to the tabernacle. So I can't, I can't take care of my parents the way I'm supposed to because I'm giving my money to God. And again, doesn't that just sound like the holiest thing in the entire world? Doesn't that sound pious? And then Jesus says that's just one example. And then in the next set of verses, verses 14 to 23, he teaches two types of people, two sets of people. First, he addresses the crowds, and then he addresses the disciples. This is what he says. He calls the crowd to him, and he says, okay, you need to listen. All of you, listen and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes out of your heart. This is a crucial Bible teaching. This is a crucial theology to understand. This is an important text. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. It's what comes out of it. And the message paraphrase says this. It's not what you swallow up that pollutes your life. It's what you vomit up. See, it's what's coming from inside of you. And then he goes to the disciples, the text tells us. And Jesus begins with an insult. And what's strange about this particular text is it can be a little disorienting for us in the way that Jesus talks to people. It begins with an insult. In the NLT, it reads, don't you understand either The NIV says, and this one's probably my favorite, he says, are you so dull? The message, paraphrase, says, actually this one might be my favorite, are you being willfully stupid? See, Jesus is trying to explain what's going on here, and then the Greek says, are you senseless? Do you not understand what's going on here? Food doesn't defile you. It doesn't go into your heart. Instead, and this is what the text tells us, it only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. See, food, external things, cannot make us impure. This was a challenging thing for them to think about, and it's challenging from us. And then we have this editorial comment, again, in parentheses at the end of verse 19. It says, by saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. So Jesus is telling 
his disciples and he's telling us something about the nature, really, he's really talking about the nature of evil. He's talking about the nature of bad things. And he asks this question, um, at least I wrote it as a question, what then does defile you? If external things don't defile you, what does defile you? And Jesus has a list. He says, what defiles you is from the inside. See, it's what's inside of the heart of, of humanity that defiles them. And then to be really helpful, Jesus gives a list. Because we are list people, aren't we? We love to know what's right and what's wrong. And um, God, give us a list so we know what we're not supposed to do. So Jesus gives a list. He says, for out of a person's heart come evil thoughts. Okay, so when I'm rolling through these, like don't raise your hand, but just mentally raise your hand. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. See, what Jesus is telling his disciples is that there is something going on internally with each person. And that is where we are defiled. That's where all of this wickedness, as we think about the wickedness in the world today, This is, it's not some external thing. And that's not denying that each one of us in the room have had wicked things done to us. We, each one of us in the room has been, has fallen victim, has fallen prey to the wickedness of other people. But it's important to understand that that wickedness, even though it's from other people, started somewhere else and that started in their heart. So we have to understand that it is not external things that defile us. What's wrong in the world is not everyone else's sin. And I know sometimes we think that if everyone else would just do this, see what we're doing is we're, we're denying that evil's within us. We are rejecting this teaching that what's wrong with the world is really us. This is a core Bible teaching, and I love it when the Bible or when the culture, when our world catches up to core Bible teachings, don't you? Don't you love it when the world catches up to core Bible teachings? Like right now, it's, it's, it's pretty common to hear people say, what you should do is, is you should work for six days, and on the seventh day, you should unplug and you should rest. Okay, that's a cultural teaching, only it started about 5,000 years ago in the Old Testament. It's actually one of the Ten Commandments. So it's pretty cool when the world kind of catches up to biblical teaching. And here's an example thinking about this this external versus internal. A few years ago, um, Marianne Williamson, she's an author and she was a presidential candidate for about two and a half seconds um, a few years ago. But she said this, a constitutional amendment could abolish slavery, but it couldn't abolish racism. A constitutional amendment could give, could give women the right to vote, but it couldn't abolish misogyny. Symptoms can legally be re-remedied, but their roots must be addressed at a deeper level within ourselves. See, so as Christians, we have to be really cautious and really careful about the way we sometimes can think 
that if we just make something legal or illegal, that will fix it. That will solve it. Maybe legally. But the real issue is not some external thing that needs to be fixed. The real issue is what's going on inside of us. So this is, let's read verses 24 through 30 together. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. Since she was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, First, I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plate. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. This is one of those texts that a friend of mine named Rick Lawrence would call a mud puddle. A mud puddle is that thing that when you're walking, when you're outside walking and you see a mud puddle, what do you typically do with it unless you're four years old? You step over it. You walk around it. You choose another path, right? You don't go into that mud puddle. In his book, The Jesus-Centered Life, Rick writes this about this particular text from today. I was leading a group of Bible college students through a deeper exploration of Jesus and his unpredictable behavior, which led to this text. I asked the students to explore with a partner all the possible reasons why Jesus responded this way. Two young women were clearly upset about the whole assignment. In their back and forth with me, they insisted that the Jesus they were encountering in this Bible passage couldn't be the real Jesus. The dialogue finally ended with one of them saying, maybe dog was actually a compliment in their culture. See, that's jumping the mud puddle, right? That is, that's seeing this problematic text and skipping it. Technology. So, we have a really fantastic tech team here at Westway Christian Church. So, in case you missed it through all the skipping, at the end of that conversation that these Bible college students were having, one of them said, maybe dog was actually a compliment in their culture. Question, in what culture would you have to be in that calling someone a dog would be a compliment? See, Rick's suggestion when, we, when we're reading through the Bible and we see a mud puddle like this, his suggestion is that we stop and we wallow in it. 
Another friend of mine last week who sent me a text about this week's scripture said this, I want to be very careful as a writer and a teacher to sit with the uncomfortable feeling instead of manufacturing some false spiritual inspiration. See, when we get to a text like this, we have to wrestle with it. We have to think about it. We have to pray about it. Maybe talk about it with other people. Maybe read up and study on it because things like this often don't make sense to us. This doesn't fit our own grid for who we think Jesus is. So for us, how do we deal with it? The phrase that we often use here is we want to press into that text. We want to lean into it. And this is where that idea of don't just read a verse matters. What I wrote here was, we remember that words get their meanings from the sentences they are in. Sentences get their meanings from the paragraphs they're a part of. The paragraphs, their meaning comes from the sections and the sections from the chapters. The chapter from the book, the book from the genre, and ultimately from the library that we call the Bible. See, it's our responsibility as Christians to know why a text like this is in the Bible. We, as Christians, need to understand why a text like this, a scripture like this, why a story like this is in the Bible. And the only way we do that is by reading the Bible. That's why for each one of the series that we do, we encourage you to not just read the section that we're going to read, but read the chapter, read the whole book. Learn what the Bible is saying. And as we wrestle with this question, it actually gets to be a little bit easier to deal with. I'm going to finish out this chapter. Let's read at verse 31, and then we'll circle back. Jesus left Tyre and went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Ten Towns. A deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him, and people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears. Then, spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Apathopha, which means be opened. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly, and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and gives the speech to those who cannot speak. So what we're reading here is about a lot of internal and external things, right? The story begins with internal cleanliness versus external cleanliness. We have this woman who is not Jewish, but a Gentile. She's not an insider. She is an outsider. And this man's physical condition makes him an outsider. These people are both, both separated from God, from God, because of their external condition. And that's exactly what the first 23 verses are about. Internal purity versus external purity. And what we start to deal with in this text and in this chapter, what we start to see is this is really about who can be a follower of Christ. 
What does it mean to be separated from God? What separates me from God? Does not washing my hands separate me from God? What does Jesus say? No. Does being a Syrophoenician woman separate me from God? No. Does being a man who can't hear, who can't speak, separate me from God? No. It's important for us to remember that Mark is, Mark is not, this isn't a YouTube video. Mark is not following kind of Jesus around and telling him every single thing Jesus ever did. Jesus didn't just leave Galilee and show up in Tyre. He likely had conversations and interactions with people. And for some reason, Mark chose to tell us these two stories in this particular chapter. They're here to demonstrate that external things don't separate us from God's love. They're here to demonstrate that external things can't separate us from God's love. That God is not just, not just for the select few, but he is open and available and his salvation is available to everyone. And we can also look to other gospels for clues. Remember I said at the beginning of the series that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what Christians call the synoptic gospels. A lot of the same stories, often similar in order. But in Matthew 15, beginning at verse 21, we, we hear something very similar to this story. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman who lived there came to him pleading, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. You notice this next part is not in Mark. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with all of her begging. As I was reading and thinking about this story and what else I had read in the Gospels this week, do you remember earlier in chapter 7 when the Pharisees were, in, were encouraging the people to use their money at the temple instead of taking care of their parents? We talked about that a few minutes ago. Using that gift as an excuse to not meet the needs of other people? I wonder if you've noticed how protective the disciples are of their time with Jesus throughout the Gospels. Anytime other people start to come into the situation, what do the disciples do? Well, they say things like, send the crowds away so they can buy some food to eat. In a few chapters, we're going to read that parents are going to bring their children to Jesus so that he could bless them. And what did the disciples do? They scold the parents for bothering Jesus. See, it's almost as if we are bent to keep good things all to ourselves. That comes from inside of each one of us. This is all one story. 
And here's where we are in the book of Mark. For seven chapters, Mark's been slowly and surely revealing the identity, heart, love, and purpose of Jesus through his words and actions. And each story and each section is revealing more and more about the heart of Jesus. And each story and section is an opportunity for us to join Jesus in his mission. To learn more about who Jesus is. And what we can learn from chapter 7 is that Jesus is determined to bring the outsider in. So maybe your question is, okay, yeah, John, that's great, but why did he call her a dog? See, I'm answering the question for you, but not in the way that you wish I would. Jesus has a spiritual purpose in mind. He is revealing things within the context of the chapter. Jesus isn't going to let the disciples interrupt his mission with their rules and regulations, or the, excuse me, the Pharisees. He's not going to let disobedient people interrupt his mission. He's not going to let the disciples interrupt his mission when they try to keep it all for themselves. G.K. Chesterton says this, if you meet the Jesus of the, of the Gospels, you must redefine what love is or you won't be able to stand him. What Jesus is doing is he's challenging us to think about who he really is. What does it mean to love people? And Jesus is not being a sexist, racist bigot that some of us may believe he's being. And if you doubt that that's a popular cultural narrative, what I would encourage you to do today is when you go home, Google Jesus is a racist, Mark 7 and your head will explode at what you see. Because that's the accusation against Jesus. That Jesus is being a racist, so Jesus needed to be taught by this woman to fully understand what it, was me, what it would mean to be the Messiah. See, as Christians, we deserve to know why this is in the Bible. Because that is what people are going to come to you and say. But when I read this text in Mark chapter 7, and I see this story, Jesus is being a racist. And the question is, how would you respond to that? What kind of answer would you give? And this is real. These are the reasons that people walk away from their faith. Because churches don't read these verses, well, except us. Churches certainly don't talk about these verses. And what we're doing is we're, we as a church, we, we send people out into the world who are ill-equipped to deal with challenges to what Christians believe. And this is, this is our responsibility as Christians to know why this is in the Bible. If Jesus is, as Mark says in chapter 1, verse 1, the Messiah, the Son of God, and if Jesus' mission is to preach about and bring the good news that the kingdom is near, if the kingdom is described faithfully in Matthew 5 to 7, and if the love demonstrated by Jesus was so strong, if the love demonstrated by Jesus was so strong that Luke, author Luke, Gospel writer Luke says, writes about in the book of Luke, and he becomes a preacher 
of that same gospel in Acts chapter 16, verse 10? And if that same Jesus, according to John, gives light and life and is filled with unfailing love and faithfulness, if all those things are true about Jesus, then Jesus is the perfect expression of love. See, if what the Bible tells us about Jesus is true, then Jesus is the perfect expression of love. And then what we have to do is we have to assume that anything Jesus says or does is an expression of that same love. Anything that Jesus does. Anything he does in any given moment is the most loving thing he could do. Even calling someone a dog which offends our 21st century sensibilities. But if Jesus is the expression of love, then he's loving her. He's telling her something about himself. And see, we have to start asking some questions. What if Jesus loves us by provoking us? What if Jesus loves us by provoking us? See, what some of us maybe have thought over the years as we've become Christians and and grown in our relationship with him is we tend to think that Jesus is going to make everything easier. And I think we have to ask the question, what if Jesus is going to love us by provoking us? What if Jesus reveals his love to us by confronting the realities of who we are without him? What if Jesus loves us by confronting us with the brokenness of the world's systems? By revealing to us the world's structures that divide us along lines of Republican or Democrat or Methodist or Christian or Presbyterian or skin color or Russian or Ukrainian. See, those are the world's categories. Those are the world's categories for us. They're categories of division. What if the only way that Jesus can reveal reality to us is by using the offensive language of the world to reveal it for what it is? See, Jesus enters into these spaces without fear because his mission and his purpose is to reveal God's coming kingdom. And by doing that, he has to confront our kingdoms. He has to confront our sensibilities. He has to confront the things that make us comfortable so that we can learn more fully who he is. Because you know, just for a second, right? So woman comes up to Jesus She's annoying the disciples. They're like, oh, Jesus, can you please send her away? And then Jesus uses the line where he calls her a dog. You know for a second how the disciples felt about that, right? Deep in their hearts, they're like, yeah, take that, you dog. You Syro-Phoenician woman. Who do you think you are coming to Jesus Imagine their shock when he accepted her and healed their daughter. See, we don't know how he said it, but we know what he said. 
and she was used to be considered used to being considered less than by the Jews. So the entire conversation was consistent for their time. This is the way they would have talked. And her response to Jesus was essentially, I may be a dog. I may be a Gentile outside the scope of your ministry. But surely, Jesus, you have something for me. Just like the scraps that fall on the floor when you're feeding your children and your dogs get it. And I think we have to ask some other questions that are frankly more important than why did Jesus call her a dog? Questions like, if even Jesus' leftovers gave life, if simply touching his cloak hears the faithful, what more will he do when we wholeheartedly pursue him? When Jesus doesn't meet your request on the first ask, do you pursue him like the Gentile woman? Or do you reject him like the people in his hometown? Do you think Jesus is out of his mind? Or do you beg to go with him? See, these are better questions. Because these questions force us to deal with ourselves. They force us to deal with what's really wrong with us, which, as Jesus says, is internal. They do not allow us to project our problems onto other people. They force us to confront ourselves. And as much as the Bible isn't written to us, it's for us. It is often through these most difficult statements. It is only through these most difficult statements that we finally understand how different Jesus is from us and how much he loves us. What I find fascinating about chapter 7 is the chapter that begins with the controversy of the washing hands with water in that same chapter ends with Jesus putting his dirty fingers into the ears of a man to open them, then wetting his fingers with spit and washing the man's tongue. And this forces us to ask, what does it mean to be truly clean? Where does that come from? See, Jesus shows no fear about being dirty or clean because in him all is all cleanliness. Jesus is not just out to fix what is externally wrong with you. He's not out to just fix what is externally wrong with me. Jesus is out to fix what's really wrong with us which is inside of our hearts. And Jesus does this by entering into the most intimate of our spaces. Jesus enters into our fears, to our biases, to our assumptions, our hurts, our wounds, our traditions, our preferences, and he transforms us into something new. So who is Jesus? How does chapter 7 answer the question, who is Jesus? He's the complete expression of love. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. Jesus is not bound by who we think he is. Jesus is not bound by what we think he should say. Jesus is not bound by how we think he should act. He radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. 
Jesus sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. He cleansed us from our sins and he's seated at the right hand of God. And he loves you. And he invites you to love him back. And see, when you go into that relationship, when you go to Jesus, he is going to tell you the reality of who you are. He's going to confront you with yourself. He's going to tell you you're a dog. He's going to point out your sin to you. He's going to point out to you the thing that separates you. And then he's going to accept you should you demonstrate faith. He's not going to hold that against you. But he is going to tell you who you are without him. And this gospel message, this good news of Jesus the Messiah is for everyone. It's for people who've been bleeding for 12 years. It's for people who are possessed by thousands of demons. If you're deaf, Jesus is for you. If you are a dog by the standards of the world, Jesus is for you. If you've never, if you've never made that decision, to follow Jesus because you thought you were too other for him. You thought there's no way that Jesus is going to love me. I want to tell you today, lovingly, you're wrong because Jesus is here for you. He's here confronting you and he confronts me. And this is an opportunity for you. You've not made that decision to make that decision. To allow him to make you something other than what you are without him. Will you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the way that it challenges our ideas and our ideals of you. It breaks them down. And I just ask that we would get to know the real you. That we would be caught up in the reality of who you are. As someone who confronts us. As someone who loves us enough to confront us. To identify who we really are without you. And just like a, just like a caring doctor tells his or her patient the truth about their condition. You tell us the truth about our condition. We are deeply, deeply broken. We are deeply, deeply sinful. And the only fix is a Savior who desires to come into our situation and bring us out of it. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.